Good morning, church. Good morning. Woo. All right, awesome. If you've got your Bibles, turn in them to 1 John chapter 1. We're gonna, we've been looking, just stumbling through the first couple of verses, and we're only going to get one more verse in. But we're going through the first four verses today. And so if you've got a Bible, you've got a Bible on your phone. Um, if you don't have a Bible on your phone, download it. You can download that now um, for free from any app store of your choosing, and uh, you could have it right here with you. Otherwise, we have a physical copy in the back and notes in the back, and you could check those out. Uh, but we've been going through this, uh, we've, really it's our summer and beginning of fall series called uh, With Feet on the Ground, talking through the letter that John wrote, uh, the, jo the same John who walked with Jesus, who self-identified as Jesus' best friend, the John who, was, who wrote the Gospel of John. And then um, he's, he's now at that weird point in life where he's one of the last of his friends to be living. Not because he's so stinking old that all of his friends have died off, but because of the fact that all of his friends have been killed for their faith. And so he's watched and he's watching as his friends are being martyred one after another. And now he's, he's getting to a point where as one of the last man standing, he's advocating for the church, passionately so. Because uh, there's a lot of people within the church who are getting Jesus wrong. And the way that they were getting Jesus wrong was they thought, yeah, no, no, we totally believe that he was God. I mean, that's totally. I mean, he couldn't do what he did or say what he said, not be a representative of God, not be God himself. But... I mean, he just looked like a man. He wasn't really a guy. He wasn't really human. He just, it was like a mirage or a ghost or something. And that was called docetism. It was like a, a facet of Gnosticism. Docetism basically means like, yeah, he kind of looks like it. Yeah, he kind of looks like he could be a man, but he's not. And John's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you miss this, I mean, we can get a lot of stuff wrong. I mean, everyone in this room has made mistakes. You can make a lot of mistakes in life. But John's argument is this. You can make a lot of mistakes. We can differ on a lot of things as Christians. But if you miss this, you miss everything. If you miss the fact that God himself actually literally became man and actually literally died on the cross and rose again, if you miss that, if you miss the fact that Jesus is all God and all man, you miss everything. And it's going to mess up not only your theology, it's going to mess up the way that you interact with hum humans. And John's argument, which I think is so cool, is the fact that if you get Jesus right, it actually propels you to a better person who's more loving person. In fact, if you wanted to summarize this book, which is kind of like an ADD dartboard of subjects that John covers that we're going to go through, you can kind of summarize a lot of it by saying this. If you really experience the God-man Jesus, your belief will lead to a fusion of life choices and obedience that will be hallmarked by love. That, that you are going to be a more loving person if you get Jesus right. So the first week we talked through the fact that John's kind of like his nickname for Jesus in, in his gospel and in this letter is the word. He's like, if you, the foundation for our love is Jesus, the word. In Greek, it was like the rationale, the logic. Jesus is logical. Even though he did illogical things for people like us, he's, he makes sense. He's truth. He's the puzzle piece that everything else fits together because of. And, and the Hebrews loved the word logos and, and because it described like the fact that God created the world with a word. He goes from darkness to light and chaos and emptiness to, to creation and vibrancy. And, and so he said, that's Jesus too. And so Jesus is the word. God became flesh. But the foundation of our love is not just that God became man, but that he did something. The event is that he died on the cross and he rose again. That again, if you want to, you, the thing that you can hang your faith on as being a non-negotiable is not your perspective on baptism. 
It's not your perspective on church polity, like, you know, whether you call it a pastor or a priest. The thing that we hang our salvation on is the incarnation of Christ and the fact that he died on the cross and rose again. That event is the game changer. And John says it's imperative. These two things give us more of a platform to better love the world around us. And John's point further gets into verse 3 by communicating that the foundation of our love is also the team. Because what John is saying is this. We are unified. We are unified by this thing that Jesus did. That's what combines us. That's what unites us. We are unified by him. But you got to get this right. The fact is, is that this isn't just something that I experienced. John is saying, this is not just something that I experienced. This is something that we experienced. We're going to get into that as we get into this passage. So if you've got your Bibles, open to 1 John chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at the first four verses. And so if you've got that uh, ready, great. Go ahead and stand on up. And I'm going to read this for us now. And again, this is John, the guy who walked with Jesus. John, the guy who watched Jesus die. John, the guy who watched Jesus, the resurrected Christ. John, the guy who was really super offended when someone's talking about his friend like he was just a mirage. And he's like, no, he's not a mirage. He's a Messiah. He's the Messiah. And so listen to the language he uses as we go through some of the same verses we've been studying to hear how absolute sensory uh, descriptors that John uses as he's describing this Jesus. Verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, that you may also have fellowship with us, And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The thing that that John is getting to is this. It's it's so cool. Um, People uh, who really, does anyone here really like grammar? Like you just, you're a grammar nerd. Okay, you, you love correcting people. Sinners. Okay, now here's the thing. I am not a grammarian, but the people who love Greek and love Greek grammar love how John did this. What John does is this. He sets up grammatical C4 by doing this. He's like building five reflexive clauses, things that are supposed to like elaborate on the noun in the sentence. Like this is going to, this, you know, sets you up to know more about him or what he's doing. And John builds tension by not giving us the giving us the, the, the source and the subject. He saves that till we get into verse 3. He keeps on building. That which we've heard, that which we've seen, that which we've touched with our hands. He's just building up this tension and boom, explodes out and says, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And here's the thing. If this is the person that we've seen, touched, heard, seen, and he's actually the person that he claimed to be, and he actually rose from the grave, which he did, that leads to something. And what he says in verse 3 is this. We proclaim to you what we have seen, what we've heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. Why am I writing this letter? Why am I telling you this stuff about Jesus? Am I just dropping theology on you? No. There's a purpose. And the purpose is that you will have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And that word for fellowship, if you've been in church land for any given amount of time, you probably know what it, even, what it is in Greek. What is the word fellowship in Greek? Koinonia. It was actually um, the spelling word, like the winning spelling word at a spelling bee. Okay, yeah. I, I, it's like the World Cup of 
words. All right, so that, that's, but that, that's what, it's koinonia. Koinonia, it means fellowship. But I grew up Baptist, and so when I think of fellowship, I think of like casseroles and like red punch that someone bought at Kmart. And so that's, that's kind of like fellowship. You, you, we get together and we eat old people food. And, that's, and, and, I, and I love it. I love it. In fact, Julie makes uh, this casserole, and I call it make Errol fat casserole because I just eat so much of it. But I remember first time I, I remember seeing it at a fellowship banquet at my Baptist church. So that's what we think of oftentimes if you hear the word fellowship. It's like, oh yeah, food, casseroles, eating together. That's not what they meant in the first century, and the first century church. This word is dynamite. Koinonia is describing, and I, if you've got your notes, I, I came up with a definition for it, and I should have put it on the screen, but it's, it's basically this. Koinonia is a defining and synergistic connection to others, stemming from a shared activity. Koinonia is a defining and synergistic connection with others, stemming from a common event, a shared experience. When I was a freshman in college, I was held hostage by a guy who just got out of prison. But I wasn't alone. I was me and 20, uh, 22, 23 others that were also held hostage. And the guy said that he was going to kill us if we weren't quiet. A spoiler alert, he didn't. But here's the thing. <laughs> Walking out of that, I didn't know those people before. But guess what? Whenever I saw those 20-something other people as I was walking around the hallways at school, do you think that we had a connection? Oh, yeah, we had a shared experience. And out of that shared experience of being held hostage, we actually had a commonality. Those kids, those 12 kids that were rescued in Taiwan from that cave, do you think they've got a shared experience? Do you think they might remember that event? Yeah. Do you think they're never going to let their kids go around a cave forever? Yeah. It's going to scar them for life. Why? Because they have a shared event, a shared experience. And John is saying this, I had an experience with Jesus. I walked with him, I talked with him, I learned from him, I watched him die. And then I watched him alive. That was my experience. But here's the thing. This is not just for my own personal salvation. Yes, I got a connection with Jesus. Because guess what? You who are thousands of miles away from the event in Ephesus, you guys actually share in this even though you weren't there. Even though you didn't walk with Jesus, you didn't see Jesus die, you didn't see him rise from the grave, but I did. And your trust in that event to what he did actually gives us like the ability to have the same type of commonality, the same common ground. We, are, we have a tightness as if you were there because in Christ you were. We have together a synergistic defining event that positions us in a way that we're able to actually, uh, we have a connection with one another that, that causes us to live out that synergism in, in how we're living with one another. And so, like, John's thing is, like, the church is going to be different. It should be different because we have, a sh we have the, uh, something that's so shared and so uniting that it transcends all of our differences. And that's a big, that's an important deal because, honestly, when we think about us in the church, we kind of approach church a little bit differently than, than perhaps we, we ought. When we, and this is not you. This is like everybody, pastors too. When we think about church, before we go to a church, we want to make sure this is a church that's a good fit, right? What are some things that, that, that people look for in church, generally? What? Yes. Yes. Bible-based. Way more spiritual than you. All right, yeah. What else? Personal connections. Personal connections. Kids, program. Kids program. Diversity. Diversity. Okay, good. 
all of you, and here's the thing, when you guys, all of you in here, at some point, before you came to NBC, you probably came up with a checklist, and you were right. Good job. You made it. You got to pick the right one. No, all of us, we all do this. We all say, okay, what, I, I need to know, how can this church meet some needs that I have? How, how could this church be the church that's teaching me or providing for my kids or training us up or, or do, you know, and we have this list. And honestly, the only problem with that is that because we choose a church like we choose a restaurant or a, or a radio station or a band, we're finding a good fit for who? Us which is great because we have preferences and opinions. And when we find a church, all of a sudden we go in there, we're like, win, we found a place that's great. They're amazing. They're just like us. They have our perspective. They have our theology. They like music like we like. They like teaching like we like. This is the best place ever. And all of a sudden you discover someplace where you've been in that church more than two weeks. There's one of them there. How did, what? It's cool. Everyone has one of them. But then you realize, wait, what? There's more. And then the thing is, is that as you continue on in this church, you realize that the church is full of them and them. How in the world? And this is the thing that's so frustrating is because all of a sudden you realize my opinions, my preference, my control is crowded out by all these other people. And they don't think right. They don't act like right. And they're not dressing right. They're not behaving right. And, and they, they think of church, it should be like this. And it shouldn't. I know how church should be. And it's not like they want it to be. John is advocating something that's very important for us to understand. This is not unique to us in America. This is not unique to us in the 21st century. Christians in the 21st century so desperately want to go back to the first century. If only we could be a first century church, an Acts 2 church. I was uh, listening to a podcast yesterday uh, with some friends uh, from Vodi Bakum, And Vodi Bakum was saying, Every, everyone wants to go back to be the first century church. You want to know what the problem with that is? We think of the first century church as Acts 2. That's right after Jesus is resurrected. Right after the people had the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden they're like, this is amazing. You know how much persecution they had at that point? All of a sudden, amazing. You know why we know that that's not the church that we should be all aiming to go back to? Because we read the rest of the New Testament. And the rest of the New Testament informs us that this church became just like us. They went to crazy town. And all of a sudden, you have churches like Corinth, where Paul's writing to church in Corinth, which sounds way more like a Maury Povich show than an ideal church. And all of a sudden, you see the fact that churches all throughout the first century struggled, hated on each other, were, were combative, thought wrong things, acted in wrong ways. And all of a sudden, they realized that, 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 that this needed to be addressed. John is writing a church in Ephesus that went from charismatic and awesome and connected to Jesus to chaos. This letter is written to a church that's breaking apart at the seams. And what he's saying is this is a problem. This is a problem. But part of the problem of this is that we have put ourselves at the center, our preferences at the center of what church is. And instead, John argues, the center of the church really needs to be him. Not us, not them, but him. And the amazing thing is, is that if he is in fact the center, if Jesus Christ is in fact the center of the church, if that's what it's defined by, not, not its kids program, although we all look for that, or, or worship, and we all look for that, or teaching, whatever, but that it's centered around Jesus. And that's what, what is the, the building and the people and everything else is known for. And all of a sudden it changes us from being a bunch of me's and them's to a bunch of us's. And then all of a sudden it helps us look at the people that are on the outside of the church 
everyone else now becomes the people that we are thinking about. We are no longer only thinking of us. We're no longer only thinking of our unity. We're actually being the beacon on a hill that, that the scriptures talk about and the light of the world that scriptures talk about. And all of a sudden, we start thinking about their needs, their world, their preferences, and we become other-centered. That's koinonia, a shared connection with him that actually impacts everybody else. Wouldn't it be amazing if the church was that? Here's how we do it. We can better love out of the fellowship with Christ by positioning ourselves in places within the church where God wants to train us. And this is not just Manuka Bible Church. This is across the board. Okay, so in three weeks, if I say something offensive and you leave someplace else, apply everything I'm saying today there, okay? If you move to Nevada um, because your work brings you to Nevada, apply this there. Because what the New Testament authors are banking off of with what John is saying right here in Koinonia, we should be fleshing out and we can take a page from how the first century church tried to pull it off. The first is this. We need to be positioning ourselves in uh, where God can push us beyond your preferences. You know how we say that mission statement every week? Real with God, real with each other, real in the world. The way we look at it as far as our steps, our action steps, is this. Once a person has received the gospel, we believe that the first step in their discipleship is faithfully attending a weekend service. And, that, and part of that is because we're corporately being real with God. We have an opportunity to worship God together. But the truth is that the underlying motivation is also the fact that God has designed the church to be a factory for love. You become a better person of love, a better expressor of love, if to the degree that you allow the church to train you. So at some point in your guys' storyline, you did this. You went from the outside of a church or outside of this church, if this is the first church you've been to since, you know, confirmation or whatever, because that's a lot of people's story. Like, I've, I haven't been at church at all, and then all of a sudden I was invited here or I showed up. You went, you did this. You went and you positioned yourself where God can push you beyond your preferences. And as soon as you faithfully attend a church, you will see that your preferences are colliding. They're on a collision course with other people's perspectives and opinions. You will be out here. I guarantee it. And Carlos is going to do a song. And you're like, oh, gosh, I can't stand that music. Like, seriously, like, can somebody just send him a playlist that works with me? Because this isn't even a singable song. Or this song is way too new. Or this song is a thousand years old. Jesus wouldn't have sung this song. You know, whatever. And you will find that the church is going to be like, with your preferences. Or when I get up here, you're going to be like, hmm, why did he say it that way? And there's lots of reasons why. So that's, but truth is that you're going to find, or any other part of this, like, oh, the coffee is too hot here. Whatever. All of our preference, you're going to be positioning yourself simply by making that step in. You are saying, I am signing up voluntarily to let this experience refine me because I will be around people with opposing preferences and opposing contra contrasting ideas. We've said this before, but we believe we want Manuka Bible Church to be a flip-flops and floorshine church. And this is a microcosm of a lot of other things. We believe that we want just, I mean, I grew up in the type of uh, setting where how you looked was kind of uniform. It was homogenized. Everyone's supposed to look like this when they go to church. And when I went to college, I was blown away that people actually dressed differently. But, but a lot of times it was one or the other. And we don't want that. At our church, we want authenticity. And so this is what we, with modesty and everything else, but what we are looking for is this. We want the guy showing up to church 
dressed to the nines. He's got a suit on. He's got the floor shimes on. Why? Well, for crying out loud, if you went before the president of the United States or the queen of England or a dignitary, wouldn't you dress up for that? This person is a person of importance. This is a person of reverence. Like, like, this person is a, a very powerful person. And so, of course, you're not going to look like a hobo when you walk in there or like you just got back from the gym. And so you're going to, sh- so you, sh- you dress in a way that you're saying, I am coming to worship before the king of kings. We want that guy here. We want that guy here at this church. And the reason we want that guy here at this church is because that is an authentic, real with God way of worshiping. And I don't want that guy to look around and seeing someone dressing more casual and say, well, I've got to dress differently because it seems like that guy is super casual and I feel awkward wearing my suit and floor shimes. Nope, not in this church. That guy needs to come that way. And the dude in the floor shimes, or in the flip-flops. We want the guy in the flip-flops showing up too because we want this guy in flip-flops and he's got like cut-off jorts and he's got um, full, full sleeve tattoos, and, and, he's, and he's coming, and, he, and, and, and looks like he may have just rolled out of bed. It may have actually taken hours to prepare that look, but whatever. He, he <laughs> looks like he just rolled out of bed. And he's coming here like that. You know why? Because he's like, you know what? I, I just am so blown away with a Savior. Jesus, he, he, you know, the Bible says that man looks on the outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. And I'm coming just as I am, because that's how Jesus sees me. He's not waiting for me to get polished up or put on my best so that he can accept me. When he sees me, he sees his kid and he loves me just like I am. Now, we don't want that dude to start dressing up. Why? Because that is an authentic worship, authentic worship of his Savior. And the thing is that at Manuka Bible Church, what I like to see is those two guys doing exactly what's happening in that picture, standing next to each other because that doesn't work anywhere else but it works in the church. Why? Because these two guys, as different as they are, have a shared reality in the incarnation of Jesus. They have koinonia that cannot be explained or expressed because these guys may vote differently, they listen to different music, and certainly they have different views on how one should show up to church. And yet, in this place, in Manuka Bible Church, they fit. And that guy on the right in the floor shines is looking over at this guy and going, I would never dress like this. And this guy in the flip-flops, like, I would never, unless it's a funeral, dress like this. And yet here, they fit. Because both are authentically expressing love. And better yet, because they've signed up voluntarily to show up to this place, they're intentionally seeking out someone who's I, I would nevers. Match, don't match, they're I would nevers. And they love each other. This guy over here, he loves that song. I can't stand that song. But you know why I sing that song? Because I love this guy. He's my brother in Christ. This guy over here is looking at this guy going, oh my goodness, this guy's, he, he really gets into this at this church. I could care less. But you know why I'm cool with it? Because we have something that's shared, this koinonia. We have a common experience in our past because of Jesus that unites us, even though we're radically different. You know what's so cool? Paul did that. Paul did that. Um, and the, the, new, the, the, new, the first century church, the New Testament church, had a major problem because you have all these Jews who've accepted Jesus as their Savior, all of a sudden realizing that Jesus really meant what he said when he said that this gospel is for everyone, not just the Jews. And all of a sudden they're dealing with Greeks who don't get Jewish customs. 
and all of a sudden they're trying to blend these. You think that it's hard having a Democrat and a Republican, hardcore Democrat, hardcore Republican in the same room together at Thanksgiving? This is bananas, what they was going on in the first century. Even crazier. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden they realize, wait, we are called to have a commonality that other people can't possibly touch or explain because we have Jesus in common. So much so that Paul his name was Saul. He's got this great Hebrew heritage, and he decides to put all that on the back burner, even though it's so important to him growing up, and he changes his name to a more Greek-sounding name of Paul. Why? To be able to better reach Greeks. One time he said, look, I'm willing to do whatever it takes so that some people come to know Jesus. You're Greek? I'm going to try to be as Greek as I can to try to reach you. You're, you're, you're a Jewish person? I, I'm going to flaunt all the Jewish stuff that I got in the hopper to be able to try to reach you. Why? Because I love you. And it's not about my preferences. It's about positioning myself where God can get me beyond my preferences. How do we do that? Let the church be a training ground for selfless love and big picture flexibility. You want to know what a good, uh, what a good marking of a spiritually mature person is? A spiritually, one, of, one marking of a spiritually mature person is not rigidity. It's being hard and fast, solid on the things that matter in our faith and open-handed and flexible about the things that don't. Train yourself within the church every single weekend. Train flexibility in holding hard to the things that matter in our faith and being flexible about the things that don't. That's the first step. Second step is this. Position yourself where God can enrich lifelong partnerships with other Jesus followers. So, you know, you're showing up every week and you're like, okay, these people are radically different from me. But th this is not where church ends. Actually, the, the idea of, of church is, is this, this picture of, of a people that are not just spectating, but they're actually engaging with one another. And a lot of times we think that, that the Bible, and, and this, is, this is a problem with our Western culture, even the way that we're seated. I mean, take a look. I mean, you guys are all seated. This is a very Western church. And it's got strengths to it. But here's the handicaps. This trains the idea that this is where the action is, right here. And your job is to spectate, to learn, to participate by nodding your head or maybe singing. But that's where it ends. Leave this up to the professionals. That's not New Testament. That's not koinonia. Scripture says that Jesus gave the keys to each one of you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to actually engage with one another and to shepherd and pastor one another. Do we have a pastor at this church? Yes. Do, do we have leadership in this church? Absolutely. That, that's important. Scripture calls us to that too. But not for you to cede your role in doing exactly what God's called you to shepherd and love one another. You got to get into groups to do that. And so uh, Tim Keller, he, he kind of summarized a lot of what Scripture says by saying this. The Bible calls all Christians, not just pastors. None of these verses are written to pastors specifically, but to you if you're a Christian. The Bible calls all Christians to mutually shepherd one another. We're to bear the burdens, Galatians 6.2. Admonish and counsel, Romans 15.14. Exhort and correct, Hebrews 3.13. Encourage and strengthen, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Teach the Bible, Colossians 3.16. Confess sins, James 5.16. Forgive and reconcile with one another, Ephesians 4.32. The book of Hebrews says that there's a priesthood of believers. That means that, that you, if you're a follower of Jesus, have access to God. You are a priest. And the temple is, your, is, your, is you. You are the temple. And the thing is, is that you have an opportunity and an obligation to actually step in and come alongside other people. 
Now, at our church, the way that we see that happening best, the, the, the positioning ourselves to do that, we find that best taking place in groups. Now, um, and actually, hold on a sec. There we go. That's a Bible verse that we don't really want to see right there. Okay, good. Build up, build or join a group of other believers to refine your calling to love and to be loved. How do we do this? How do I position myself? Well, after I'm real with God, I'm real with each other. And the way that I'm real with each other is I take this experience out. I want to encourage you, be the people that when you show up here, find other people in your row and just go, well, this is awkward. But I'm going to go ahead and talk to them and actually get to know people in your row. And the thing is, is that there's a very good chance that they're going to be in the same place next week. Because you are too, because we are creatures of habit. I look around this room and you are in exactly the same places you are every single week. When you change, it freaks me out. I'm like, <laughs> seriously, it messes up with my brain. You want to see me get, like stutter and like get, go crazy? Change positions next week. and it, Change the sides of the room. I will be falling on the ground. But, but here's the thing. Let's, let's, let's recognize we're, tre- we're creatures of habit. You have an opportunity to shepherd your section. Be the person. Man, I didn't get greeted today. Who cares? You're the greeter. You're the greeter in your role. When you get into your row, start to greet the people in your row and the row behind you. Not just in the 15 seconds of pivot that Carlos gives us. Okay? Pivot's great. But do this. And then start to get to know people. Invite them out to lunch afterwards. Go out to eat together. Hang out. Start to get to know each other. In our church, we believe in groups. And so the way that what groups are, our definition of groups is any gathering at our church where you have an opportunity to be exposed to Scripture, an opportunity to interact. So you're not just spectating. You're not just being taught at. But you get a chance to ask questions, an opportunity to pray for each other. Because you have a calling to love people, and you can't do that when you're simply showing up and sitting on the bench. You have to get alongside each other long enough to actually know what we're struggling with, to know that we struggle, for you to actually love somebody else and be vulnerable and humble enough to allow someone to love you. For you to forgive someone else. And if you're alongside someone long enough, you will have to forgive people in this church and be humble and vulnerable enough for somebody to forgive you. This is how you position yourself where God can enrich lifelong relationships with other believers. Third action step on this, if we want to live out this koinonia, is to position ourselves where God can flesh out our purpose in this world. Because here's the deal. The church was not simply a church to, call, to believe the right things and gather together to believe the right things. As that first picture showed, we're intended to gather together surrounded by who Christ is so that we can then actually be a light in this world. That we can actually leave this circle and actually find purpose in life by serving others in Christ's name and for his glory. Let me just give you a couple examples. And I didn't ask her permission before I did this, so this is why it's even more fun. Allie. You heard her um, on stage already. Allie um, is somebody who was at our church. Her and Nate for a long time. It was awesome to see them. But something happened in Allie's storyline. And I, I can't trace it back exactly where, but I think a big, big, big deal was when she first went to Haiti. When she first went to Haiti, all of a sudden, it was like this, this something got supercharged in Allie. It's like all of a sudden she saw this amazing need. And, and if you're looking for a place with amazing need, Haiti is the place. And this amazing need, and she saw that she had a part in partnering with the brothers and sisters in Christ in Haiti to serve the people of Haiti. It wasn't just like, hey, we're coming in, we're like awesome, hopeful people. Peace, 
and, and doing just doing drive-by missions, we were partnering with pastors and brothers and sisters that were Haitians. And Allie had a chance to see that. And so she went again, and she went again. And you know what then happened? Allie got sick of that. Not sick of Haiti, but sick of the idea that she had to get on a plane to go someplace else to bring hope and light. So you know what she started to do? She started to be a part of the Endeavor team. She, she became the director of it. She became the director of it because she said, why would I get on a plane and go someplace else to serve people when, I'm, when we have so many needs right here? We should be doing both. And so all of a sudden, she started to come up with the ability to come up with six to 12 things per year to engage you and positioning you and setting you up that you're going to be able to do exactly what she did, to position yourself where God can flesh out your purpose in this world by being the light around you. Here's the thing. You want to know what Allie's spiritual gift is? I have no clue. I don't know. I don't know if Allie knows. I've never given her a spiritual gifts test. I don't know if she's ever taken a spiritual gifts test. You know what? You know how many spiritual gifts tests there are, there are in the New Testament? Zero. In fact, whenever Paul talks about spiritual gifts, he gives a different list, which is kind of funny, which leads me to believe something about it. You know, you want to know what Allie's spiritual gift is? Being Allie. Allie's spiritual gift is this. God has designed her and crafted her, and when he connected her with his Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit gave her giftings that she can actually utilize those giftings in significant ways to serve the common good, to serve others in the community, to serve this world, and to bring the gospel everywhere. What's Allie's spiritual gift? Be an Allie. Let me tell you this about someone else, and I don't think he's here, because if he was here, he'd really be upset that I'm putting his picture up. Okay, he's not. Alan. Alan would be petrified if he knew that I was putting his picture up here. And if he's in the next service, I'm going to skip over that part of the slide. <laughs> but I don't think Alan is here, because I think Alan is with the high schoolers. You want to know why? Because this guy, who would have never said when he was 15 or 16 years old, you know what I'm going to be really gifted at? Youth work or children's work. And yet this guy has for years and years and years and years and years volunteered in the children's ministry. Who taught my kids theology? Alan. Who was the one who came alongside them? Alan. When they got into junior high, who was a junior high volunteer? Alan. When they got into high school, who was one of Micah's leaders? Alan. Not just someone who shows up. He pours into them. He takes his small groups on trips. He, he, he shares with them his story. Now, Alan will never stand up. There's never going to be a book that says, you want to know the best way to do student ministry? Alan Ferry style. Alan wouldn't let him do it. But I'll tell you, who's done some of the most significant youth work and children's work in our church is not one of the pastors. It's Alan Ferry. Crazy thing. You want to know what his spiritual gift is? I have no idea. His spiritual gift is being Alan. He's available. He saw a need. We, need. we need volunteers in our children's ministry. And he stepped in. Even if he wasn't passionate about it, it became a passion after he volunteered. And I could talk about so many more people in this church that are simply show, showing up and pouring into something that may not be their passion. And yet... God creates a passion with it and is creating a legacy. Paul put it this way. And there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, of the, ma now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. If you're a Christian, God has gifted you for the common good. Stop spectating. Stop waiting for the professionals to do it, because we're not. 
The church is not built and based around a couple of select people who went to Bible college doing the work. You know why? Because none of the disciples would have qualified. The church happens when you step up and step in. And then you start to experience what John was talking about in the joy. Position yourself where God can flesh out your purpose in the world. You have a vital role to play in this movement. Get after it. Get after it. When I, the, the gym I go to, they say that all the time. Get after it, people. Which basically means you want to sit down and, and die. Don't. Stand up and move. Get after it. Stop making excuses. Stop just... Go. You're going to see the benefit later on. Just step in. It's going to be awkward right now. Go anyway. So church, I want to challenge you with the same. Get after it. Do that. And all of a sudden, you'll see that this, in fact, is a place that's centered around around your preferences or your opinions or your way of doing things. But it is, in fact, centered around him. And if it's a church that's centered around him, it will be a church full of us. And we will see the impact stretch out to the topography of this land. And on the path that you're on, when you're trying to figure out your following of Jesus, you will see that the more you love like him from the factory that is the church, the church, will, when they see you, will in fact see a picture of God with feet on the ground. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, it feels like every single time we talk about love, it, it's very, very difficult to pull off. And the idea of, of looking and viewing church through the lens of being a, a factory to refine our ability to love and give us opportunities to love seems crazy. But Lord, we're asking you to step in and cause in us a passion to go from this place out. Lord, I pray that you equip us with the passion and the vision that you have for not only this church community, but the world around us. And we'll give you the thanks for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Sign up for the uh, Endeavor opportunity out there for Great Church Giveaway, and we'll see you next week.